Thank you, everyone, for dialing in today. I'd like to welcome you to the Bloggers Roundtable for Thursday, March 24, 2011. My name is Brittany Brown from the Office of the Chief of Public Affairs, and I will be moderating our call today. As a quick note to our bloggers on the line today, please remember to clearly state your name and your blog or organization in advance of your question. Out of respect for our guest time, please keep your questions succinct and to the point, and I'll make sure to get to everyone on the line. Today, our guest is Major General Jeffrey Buchanan of United States Forces, Iraq. General Buchanan is on the line to discuss the way forward for U.S. forces in Iraq. At this time, I'm going to hand it over to General Buchanan for a brief opening statement. Okay, thanks, Brittany, and I appreciate you moderating, moderating tonight's uh, discussion. Good evening to everybody, uh, and thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today in our discussion about Iraq. Although there's a lot of, there are a lot of important events occurring in many countries around the region, this is also a particularly significant time uh, for Iraq and for Iraqi-U.S. relations. Uh, today I'd like to talk a little bit about why this phase is so important, where it started, and where it's headed. Uh, regarding Operation New Dawn, as many of you know, the USFI, United States Forces Iraq mission, transitioned from Operation Iraqi Freedom to Operation New Dawn on the 1st of September of last year. And with this transition, the focus of U.S. forces shifted from combat operations to stability operations. Since then, and actually as, as part of the precursors for that shift, the Iraqi security forces uh, assumed sole responsibility for the security of the country. In fact, uh, that their ability to assume responsibility for security was a main factor that allowed for that transition to take place. The ISF has had the lead for security for many months, and they're doing a commendable job. And by any measure, security has drastically improved. Attack levels are a fraction of what they were just a few years ago. Casualties have declined significantly. And the violent extremist networks have been severely degraded. So in many ways, this phase is a culmination of events which were set in motion last year. In 2010, Iraq held free, fair, and participatory parliamentary elections. They began a process of government formation which required compromise and ultimately resulted in a representative and inclusive government. They reestablished diplomatic relations with a number of neighbors, and they've had a number of important security successes, including the killing and capturing of a number of top al-Qaeda and Iraq leaders. Also last year, USFI successfully met the President's goal of drawing down to 50,000 troops. And certainly, the, despite all these successes, the, the government of Iraq faces many challenges. Recently, Iraqis have expressed their democratic right to voice their opinions through demonstrations in which they called for sorely needed improvements in essential services and government accountability. And delivering on these improvements and developing economic opportunities are going to be important priorities for the government of Iraq. Another important challenge lies in maintaining the security gain. Indeed, although the ISF has grown in quality and quantity, they're going to require further training and development in order to close capability gaps and maintain their current high op tempo and sustained pressure on the violent extremist networks. In fact, our, our listeners may not know this, but the Iraqi security forces uh, have been at both at the same time the fastest growing security forces in the entire world and have maintained the highest op tempo uh, at the same time. 
because security provides the foundation for Iraq's prosperity, it's important that our U.S. USFI's advised, train, assist, and equip mission continue. In just a little over nine months, the mission of USFI will transition to a fully-led authority in accordance with the security agreement signed by both the Iraqi and U.S. governments in 2008. We have been and will continue transitioning and transferring bases and equipment. And U.S. forces continue to maintain focus on our three major military tasks of advising, training, assisting, and equipping the Iraqi security forces, conducting partnered counterterrorism operations, and protecting civilians uh, that come from the U.S. Mission Iraq and the United Nations as they work to build civil capacity throughout the country. Frankly, we have a lot to do uh, in our time left here, but we're determined to get as much done as possible in that short time that we have left. All of this adds up to a uh, an idea that uh, of why uh, our developmental programs for the Iraqi security forces are so important beyond 2011. And, you know, if you go back to 2008, our two countries signed two agreements. One was a security agreement, and the other was a strategic framework agreement. The strategic framework agreement uh, aspires to a long-term or an enduring partnership between Iraq and the United States, and it sets the conditions for cooperation in a whole host of areas, including areas such as education, agriculture, uh, economic development, the sharing of science and technology, as well as defense and security cooperation. So this year, that uh, strategic framework agreement is helping us uh, work through the transition efforts that we have between the military and the U.S. mission in Iraq. And it also it gives us an azimuth to follow uh, as we move through and progress through operations this year, but it also gives us an azimuth to follow well into the future. Much progress has been made, and there's still a lot of work to do, but I'm confident that Iraq is going to continue on a steady path towards progress. And President Obama, uh, last year, uh, gave us a charge, and, and since then, both uh, General Austin, the CG of U.S. Forces Iraq, and Ambassador Jeffrey have made have taken this as a centerpiece of their vision for the country, and that is that Iraq uh, becomes a country that is stable, sovereign, and self-reliant. Now, when Iraq achieves that, we think it's good for the Iraqis. Uh, it's good for the United States and our interests in a long-term relationship with Iraq, and, and it's also good for the entire region. And Brittany, with that, I'll uh, turn it back over to you and, uh, and to our participants tonight for their questions. Thank you so much for your opening remarks, General Buchanan. At this time, I'm going to begin field quest fielding questions from bloggers on the line. Uh, first up, can we have Bryant Jordan from Military.com? Do you have a question for General Buchanan? Yes, I do. Uh, first off, thank you very much, General. Um, I'm wondering, uh, I understand that um, Iraq was uh, a supporter of um, Arab nations joining in the uh, supporting the coalition in Libya. Uh, do you know? Have you seen any indication that Iraq is willing to uh, provide any personnel or assets to this? I realize they have their own issues right now, but as they supported this, I just wonder if they're going to put any people or assets in this venture. 
I, as, as I understand it, their uh, support was limited to diplomatic support through the initial decision uh, as a member of the Arab League uh, in, uh, in arguing for uh, the UN Security Council resolution. So they, they support the operation, uh, but, but that I know of, there is no intent uh, to deploy forces or provide monetary support. Thank you. Thank you for your question, Mr. Jordan. Uh, Nick Terse of Times Dispatch, do you have a question for General Buchanan? Yes, um, uh, thanks very much for, for speaking with us today, General. Uh, I wondered if you could talk uh, specifically about the type of training and instruction offered to Iraq's uh, Army Intelligence Units and its uh, Federal Police Force, and also comment on the professionalism of these units. Uh, sure, I can. Uh, I, I personally actually was involved with training the federal police a number of years ago, and it's uh, it's pretty inspirational seeing them on several subsequent tours and how much progress they have made. One of the key uh, efforts or behind the progress they've made is the involvement of the NATO training mission in Iraq and its uh, its developmental programs that are focused at both the individual uh, federal police level as well as the leadership. And in particular, the Italian Carbonieri has been helping us with these efforts for a number of years. And they have helped to build a federal police force that, that is the pride of the country. Uh, and, uh, and the federal police force is, in fact, uh, represents one of the major opportunities uh, to uh, allow the Army to focus uh, more and more on traditional army tasks rather than policing tasks. Um, so specifically, the uh, the training includes individual training on everything from uh, from marksmanship uh, to patrolling procedures, arrest procedures, etc., all the way up to uh, counterterrorism operations. Uh, with respect to the training of the intelligence units. Uh, we have this is this is actually one of our major focus areas for the remainder of 2011 because the Iraqis have had a, a very capable human intelligence system over the years uh, but what they have lacked is an ability to share information from one agency to the next and in fact they don't have a national system uh, that helps them collect analyze and disseminate information so, for example, if a, uh, somebody who may be running sources as part of a human network in Mosul uh, would, would task those sources and then collect information but keep, them, but keep that information in a notebook that, uh, that never made its way into a national-level database, whereas the information in that notebook might be absolutely critical to solving a problem that somebody in Baghdad is facing. And, of course, it becomes even that much more difficult uh, to get after that information when it goes from MOD to MOI. So as part of the, uh, the Iraqi government's preparation for security for the Arab League summit that's now scheduled in May, we're helping them uh, develop a intel and operations center that goes across uh, different agencies and works uh, from the national level on down uh, to help them overcome some of the obstacles they have in sharing information. Thank you. 
Gail Harris, do you have a question for uh, General Buchanan? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I was uh, wondering, uh, have you been training Iraqi women to be part of the security forces? I apologize for the background. I'm at an airport. Uh, the answer to your question about Iraqi women uh, being part of the security forces is yes, uh, both in the Ministry of Defense uh, and the Ministry of Interior forces and the police forces. Uh, as you might as you might suspect, there's a there's a critical need for women in the police forces, especially uh, that help with searching uh, women as they as they move from one place to the next on checkpoints, uh, dominantly because of the cultural sensitivities and potential problems that one might encounter if you had a male search a woman. And of course, you'll you'll probably remember uh, a number of years ago. Al-Qaeda tried to exploit that seam or potential seam by uh, recruiting and training a number of women as suicide bombers. And they did have some operational success over the years, in particular against the religious pilgrimages uh, that occurred in uh, Ashura and Arba'in with women suicide bombers. The Iraqi government, the short-term solution was to, uh, to hire a number of uh, contractors, if you will, for lack of a better term, uh, women who helped with uh, conducting searches. But the long term has been to develop a credible, uh, credible police cadre, uh, and so that's been uh, that's been where they've seen a, a number of success, and uh, and they've taken that to the new level where they have women cadre, women officers, and women non-commissioned officers assisting with uh, with the development of police forces. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your question, Gail. Spencer Aikerman, do you have a question for General Buchanan? Yes. How many U.S. troops will remain in Iraq for the continuation of its advisory assistance training mission beyond 2011, and what will be the structure to command them? What bases will they have? Where will they be based, et cetera? Well, Spencer, the, uh, our two countries signed a security agreement back in 2008, and Article 24 of that security agreement mandates the withdrawal of U.S. forces, a complete withdrawal of U.S. forces, to include the transition of the mission of U.S. forces of Iraq to a civilian-led authority by the end of December of this year. And that's what all our plans are, are geared towards uh, as we speak. That's what... Uh, uh, we are working towards a, are the transition. So to to answer your your question fully, we we the current plans are we don't intend to uh, to maintain for U.S. forces Iraq at any point in time beyond uh, December of 2011. Now, will as be, you, as you go ahead, I'm sorry. Sorry, will there be a different command structure for any residual troops, or will we really get down to zero after uh, U.S. troops after December 2011? Well, what, uh, what is uh, likely to occur is exactly what we have as, as part of missions uh, throughout the world, but in particular in this region, in that we have a, we have a number of defense or security uh, cooperation offices that work under the ambassador's authority in most of the countries in the area, and they assist. Their primary task is to assist with the fielding of equipment 
and facilitation of uh, foreign security assistance and foreign military sales. So uh, because the Iraqi government has already contracted for a number of systems and have already, has already uh, purchased a number of systems that the fielding plans will extend beyond 2011, you know, this is what we're likely to see, a very small element that operates under the ambassador's authority. Now, you've probably uh, seen uh, – go ahead. I'm sorry. About how many is small? Uh, well, to, you know, less than a, less than a couple of hundred uh, full-time, and they would not all be mil uniformed military personnel. Um, it would be a, a split uh, between military and civilian. Uh, and it, it could uh, increase over time with the, you know, let's say that the Iraqis over over the years end up uh, buying a particular aircraft. Well, it's likely that we would have to uh, include a deployment, you know, in a TDY status of a small number of personnel to help with the fielding and training associated with that, whether it's an aircraft, a new boat, a new artillery system, something like that. Now, you've probably also seen uh, comments uh, by U.S. leaders that, uh, that obviously state one of the provisions of the security agreement, which is that, uh, that there are provisions in the security agreement for the Iraqi government to ask for some additional or continued presence. And, uh, and if those requests were to come, our policymakers and, and our national leadership would take that on and consider seriously consider any such request. Uh, that I know of, we have not received any such request today. Do you have any indication that you'll get that request before December 2011? I'm sorry, I really can't speculate about that. Um, you know, that's going to be up to the Iraqi government. Thank you. Thank you for your question, Spencer. Uh, now I'd like to ask if uh, Alexandra from Army News Service, if you have a question for General Buchanan. Yes, thank you. Um, kind of continuing along the same um, theme there, um, I just kind of have a technical question about um, the small number of troops and um, government employees that, that may stay on after 2011, sir. Um, would this, I think you mentioned TDY, would this be considered a regular one-year deployment for that small number of troops, or would they maybe be hand-picked um, officers with specific expertise in um, in different areas that might be needed? Yeah, I, I think what you're likely to see is, much as we do in most of the other uh, embassies in the region, is that there's a small uh, cadre or our group of officers, non-commissioned officers, and civilians of all services, not just Army, but all services that work under, that are assigned here for some period and work under, this is a normal assignment, not a TDY billet, but work under the ambassador's authority and they, the chief of mission authority, and in fact their chain of command uh, reports up to the chief of mission. But they would be assigned on the military side to U.S. Central Command. Again, this is a model for uh, for that uh, we see throughout the region. Now, in addition to that, there is likely to be uh, for the the particular requirements of 
fielding of a certain system, there is, let's say, for example, the um, Iraqi government decided at some point in time in the future that they were going to buy a helicopter that they don't have right now. And uh, as part of that foreign military sales purchase, they requested, which, which of course, we always encourage training, maintenance package, and all of these kinds of things. Well, it's likely to assume that some of that would occur inside the United States. Some of that would probably occur inside of Iraq. So any particular expertise for the training or maintenance or uh, training of pilots, ground crews, maintenance personnel would probably come in a TDY basis because those personnel would not uh, typically be uh, assigned to the U.S. mission. Okay. So... Is it safe to say that as long as the Iraqi government does not ask for troops to stay on after 2011, that uh, for the most part, um, U.S. Army troops won't have to worry about being deployed to Iraq in the future? Well, that's, uh, obviously I, I can't read into the future too far. I mean, they could always at some point in time in the future even beyond 2011, ask for additional help. And, and it, let's say in 2013 something occurs, they decide they need additional help, whether it's for training or security operation. You know, they always have they always have the option, like like all of our strategic partners do, to ask for additional help. And they could do so. And in in that particular case, if they were to ask, I'm sure our government would seriously consider the request. Uh, but, but back to the impact of uh, of your question, you know, to the to date that I know of, they have not asked, and and so, in accordance with the security agreement, the mission of USFI will transfer to completely to civilian-led authority, and our troops will redeploy by the end of the year. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your question, Alexandra. I believe we had someone call in a little bit uh, late. If you just join us on the line, well, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been on since since ten of Andrew Wooten here. Is there a possibility of me sneaking in? Sure. Go ahead and uh, ask your question. Thank you, General Andrew Wooten, Military Observer. Thank you for taking the time, sir. General, when we see these suicide attacks happen, they happen in groups of several major attacks over several days. Is the weak link? The, ICE, the Iraqi security force, is it their middle-level officer corps, or is it disinterest in Baghdad? What needs to be improved where they don't lose, you know, 60, 700 people in three or four days? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's a pretty complex question. I'll try to tackle it by, by first of all, talking about the groupings that, that you discussed on what, what looks at the uh, – what what looks at first analysis like it's a grouping of a number a number of attacks on a certain day or a certain series of days but i think there's uh, there's some bigger things to talk about about who is conducting the attacks and what's going on uh in particular with al qaeda in iraq or isi the islamic state of iraq who are who are major the major proponents of suicide operations so first of all back to your uh Back to the the first question, which has to do about the grouping. When when you see sometimes when you see a a suicide bombing, it seems like 
there's a, a group of them that happen over a number of days. If you go back and you look at uh, what was going on in Iraq in both December and January, we had two major religious pilgrimages occur, and those those are were Ashura and Arba'in. Both of them commemorate the Shia side of Islam. And so uh, Shia Muslims participate in a very big way in both of those pilgrimages, Ashura and Arba'in, where Sunni Muslims do not. Now that's contrasted with, for example, the Hajj, which is a fundamental, uh, one of the fundamental requirements for all Muslims to aspire to, Sunni and Shia. So if you take, if you look at the Hajj, which includes all types of Muslims, you don't see much change in the attack level. And that's because the, the primary conductors of those attacks, in this case, uh, uh, takfiris or Salafists, which are Sunni, uh, primarily inside Iraq anyway, associated with Al-Qaeda in Iraq or Islamic State of Iraq, um, they would be attacking, if they were to attack people during the Hajj, they would be attacking some Sunnis as well. But I contrast that with what happens during the two uh, dominantly Shia religious pilgrimages, Ashura and Arba'in. That's essentially a, a opportunity to attack some of the very people that they are trying to murder. And so that's why you have large numbers in both cases, you have very large numbers of Iraqis conducting pilgrimages, walking uh, to the towns of Najaf and Karbala, dominantly Karbala, um, during those commemorations. And because you have millions of uh, Shia Muslims on the road, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity to attack them. And so even with tremendous... Uh, improvements in the security of Karbala, for example, during Arba'in this year, the attack levels were way down compared to the last several years, and the the Iraqi security forces did a did an excellent job maintaining security, even with the uh, with upwards of 10 million pilgrims, virtually no attack no attacks inside the uh, the security zone that they established around Karbala. There were a number of attacks on the routes leading up to Karbala. And so, you know, the Iraqi security forces thwarted some of those attacks, uh, but they didn't thwart all of them. And so, you know, part of that, it's just the nature of the size of the problem that they're having to deal with. Um, one thing that I would say in general about the Iraqi security forces, and I, I've, been, I've been working with them for a number of years. Uh, really since 2003, the only year that I have not worked with the ISF is 2007. So at, at, some, at least part of every year since 2003. And it's pretty inspirational when you've been involved with them over these years and seen how they have developed over time. But one of the key things that has changed over the last couple of years is they've increasingly become what I would call learning organizations, something that we in our military, we take for granted that we tend to be very self-critical and we look at every operation, uh, both the good ones and the bad ones, and we try to figure out what can we learn from it and how can we apply those lessons learned. Well, over the past two years in particular, the Iraqi security forces have taken on this mindset. 
So even during operations, when they when they have a failure, a breach of security, or something that allows a a member of Al Qaeda to attack some of these pilgrims, they are very serious about trying to figure out why it happened and how can they prevent it in the future. And some of it involves improvements in checkpoint security. Some of it involves um, uh, improving their intelligence cap capability in uh, uncovering information and sharing it across uh, across the different agencies. So they have had quite a bit of success uh, over the uh, over the last couple of years, and the impacts that we have had with the Iraqi security forces on Al Qaeda, in particular, over the past year and a half or so have been fairly phenomenal through our operating through our partnered counterterrorism operations. We've had significant impacts on degrading all parts of their networks, their ability to bring foreign fighters across the border, their ability to recruit Iraqis, their ability to raise finances, which is why we see al-Qaeda resorting to robberies and things like this because they haven't gotten outside uh, financial support, and their ability to plan and conduct uh, uh, these suicide operations, but they're still out there. They're still very, very dangerous. They've never changed their ideology, and they're determined to murder as many people as they can. And occasionally, they do succeed in doing so. Thank you very much. This Thank you for your question, uh, Jay from News from Central Command. Do you have a question for General Buchanan? Uh, yes, I do. Hello, General. Uh, I have. I uh, just wanted to know that, given what we've seen in the last few weeks in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Libya, and now Syria and Nepal. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about the role of the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, for that matter, in emboldening other people in the region to begin to take a stand against some of these regimes. Wow. Okay. I, I, I've, got to, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm going to limit my comments to Iraq, if you don't mind. I, I, can't, uh, I can't speculate about what's going on inside the other countries. But I can talk about how the Iraqis are dealing with um, the unrest and and what they're learning from it. Uh we've seen a couple of different uh, a couple of different reactions to the protests throughout the region region uh in in the Near East Asia or Middle East in particular, uh inside Iraq. And uh and one has been that it's it's reinforced the Iraqis' understanding of what democracy is all about. You know, they have they have tended to look at themselves and figured out, okay, this this process that we took to form the government uh, last year was hard. It was difficult. It probably took a lot longer than anybody would have liked. Um, but in the end, it was the Iraqi people who came out and chose their own form of government. And, and chose their leaders, and so uh, so it has reinforced their their understanding that the people have had a voice. Now at the same time, you know, democracy is a heck of a lot more than it's a it's a lot it's about a lot more than just casting votes. It's about being responsible to the to the citizenry, and so there are some there are some lessons that are that. The Iraqis continue to learn. I'll just give you one quick example: is media, and what's the role of the media in the in the in a democracy? Well, we we sometimes tend to take it for granted 
that the government is accountable to the people and the media are, are one of the key means of maintaining that accountability. Well, if you look at the tr tradition of media inside Iraq, that was clearly not the role of them in the past. And so the media is increasingly playing a role to help uh, hold the government accountable to the people, and the government is wrestling with how do they do that and ensure protection of the people at the same time. So one thing that I think the uh, the leadership of the Iraqi the Iraqi government learned through these uh, protests that they saw in other countries were they've got to listen to the people and communicate with the people. And so even now they're wrestling with how do they do that. And and you know there's a relatively low level of internet penetration, for example, throughout Iraq. Um, but the leadership of Iraq has taken on how, how do we use social media so that we can communicate with people. And we right now are dealing with the Ministry of Defense to help them understand how to employ Facebook as a tool to not just transmit messages, but actually engage in a dialogue. Uh, so there, there are a number of things that the Iraqis uh, have learned um, by, uh, by watching what's going on in the rest of the region. And most of it is it's actually helping them develop, better develop and refine a set of democratic values. Thank you for your question, Jay. DJ Elliott, do you have a question for General Buchanan? Yes, sir. This is DJ Elliott with Montrose Toast. I was wondering about possibly getting an update on the uh, EDA provision of the M113s and howitzers and this external training that's going on in the four Iraqi Army divisions. Uh, why the 9th Division is not on that list. If you could. Sure can. Um, let me uh, let me take the uh, the fielding of equipment first, and then I'll I'll uh, I'll talk briefly about uh, what's happening with uh, the training system that the Iraqis refer to as Jadrib al Shamal, which is this uh, comprehensive training that uh, that you referred to. The uh, as far as the M113s go, there are uh, the Iraqi government has purchased 1,026 of them. Uh, they have not been fielded yet, but uh, will be fielded through the course of uh, through the course of this year. Howitzers, two types, uh, M109s, uh, which uh, are meant to be, uh, you know, the self-propelled 155 millimeter howitzers, are meant to be married up with the tank regiments, dominantly in the 9th Division, but not entirely in the 9th Division, and. Uh, and those are 23 of uh, of the 24 have been uh, have been fielded. And then, uh, lastly, the uh, M19 or 8 howitzers, which is a towed 155, are scheduled for 120 to be fielded. Uh, only eight have been delivered to date, uh, but the rest will uh, will come in over the course of the year. Um, the Jadrib al-Shamal that you, that you mentioned, or comprehensive training, it was late in the year that the uh, late last year of 2010, the Ministry of Defense came to us uh, concerned about uh, potentially future threats and, and really focused on external threats to the country. You know, the Iraqi security forces have a very good counterinsurgency capability 
all of the forces do, both MOD and MOI. But as the MOD was looking out into the future, they're concerned about their ability to do what we would think of as basic blocking and tackling with respect to offensive and defensive tasks. Um, and so they came to us and asked us to work with them in helping develop a program. In doing so, uh, they established uh, a priority and a system for for what that program would look like. And essentially what we have done uh, working with the MOD is to develop a battalion-level training program. It takes a battalion out of current operations for a month at a time, and uh, it, those, uh, the four divisions that part are participating is one from the Nineveh area of Mosul, the third uh, infantry division, one from Diyala, uh, northeast of Baghdad, the fifth division, one from Anbar, the seventh division, and then one from Dakar province down near Nazaria, the tenth division. And so those four divisions are participating in this effort. And uh, like I said, we take a, a battalion uh, at a time for about a month period out of current operations and work with them starting with individual training and move through squad, platoon, company training and culminate with battalion training, actually a series of live fires. And it's focused on both offensive and defensive tasks. And we're also using this as an opportunity to get after some of the sustainment issues, particularly at the tactical level, about how do you uh, deploy forces, how do you provide for ammunition, fuel, movement, etc. Um, response has been very, very positive. It started out, our first iteration started in January, and we're now nearing completion in our third iteration. Again, they're lined up with the calendar months, but we started out with completely U.S. cadre and have changed over time to increasing participation from the Iraqi leadership. And in, in this particular iteration that we're nearing completion of, the third one in March, uh, we've gotten more and more Iraqi participation, and by the end of the summer, it'll be an entirely Iraqi-run uh, operation. Now, one of the most important uh, desired effects that we're looking for is not the details of, of what goes on inside of that battalion with respect to understanding and employment of tactics for, for offense and defense, but it's actually the building of a culture that thinks that training and the ability to plan, coordinate, and conduct training is critical to future success. And this is where it does have an impact on the uh, on the Ninth Division, because the Ninth Division, just like the Eighth Division, you know, has looked at this. A number of other units have, and uh, and said, hey, we want some of that as well. Now we took the priority from the Ministry of Defense, um, but I think that the the dominant reason that they did not include the Ninth Division in this was because of the complexity of equipment fielding that the 9th Division is going through with the assumption of responsibility for the M1 tanks and the M109 howitzers. But what they have done is observe and participate in the training efforts. So they're developing their own, with our advisors that serve with the 9th Division, their own training systems that are, that are focused as well on offensive and defensive tasks. The 8th Division in the Mid-Euphrates region took a look at the program and, and basically said, hey, we want some of this too. And so they worked with our regiment that's there partnered with them, the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, 
and they've developed their own system, which was above and beyond what the MOD asked for. This is exactly the kind of effect that we were looking for. And the reason is because, it, you know, at the end of this year when USFI's mission is done, um, the Iraqi forces are clearly going to still have some capability gaps. One of those gaps is their, their ability to integrate combined arms in a meaningful way. You know, it's one thing to have have the capability to operate and employ uh, tanks or artillery pieces, but when you try to integrate them uh, with a with a sound set of tactics using fire and maneuver, that gets a heck of a lot more complex, especially as the level of operations or the size of the operations and the units go up. So that's why we thought it was important to get them started off with this culture of, uh, of training. Now, because we're dedicated to having a, a, a enduring relationship with the Iraqi Armed Forces beyond 2011, that doesn't depend on the presence of U.S. troops. We look forward to a relationship where we can help continue to develop them and help them well into the future. But it, what it may be is, you know, U.S. forces work with them on joint training exercises well into the future. Or we bring, we continue to bring Iraqi officers and NCOs to our U.S. schools so we can partner with them in that way. So there are a number of models that we have out there with other forces, but, but we know that they're going to need uh, continued development beyond the presence of USFI. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your question, Mr. Elliott. Um, I believe everyone on the line has had a chance to ask a question for General Buchanan. Is there anyone I may have unintentionally missed during the Q&A portion of this call? Okay. If not, I'd like to wrap up our call and ask General Buchanan if he has any final comments or a closing statement. Well, I, I would like to... Uh make uh, a couple of comments. First of all, I, I talked about the importance of media in um, inside the government of Iraq to hold the government accountable uh, for what's going on, but but that serves a it serves the same responsible or it serves the same requirement in our country. And so I want to thank you all for participating and and helping to under helping the American people to understand what's going on in Iraq, and also playing a role in helping to uh, maintain the accountability of the U.S. government back to the American people. Lastly, what I'd like to do is thank, uh, thank all the American people for their great support that they have given our troops uh, and continue to give our troops uh, in everything that we do. I can't tell you how much it means to walk through an airport in a uniform and get get thanks and and pats on the back just for what we're doing. It means a tremendous amount, and uh, and we owe all that great support to the American people. So thanks, Brittany. I appreciate uh, I appreciate the time tonight. Thank you, General Buchanan, for your closing remarks, and thank you to everyone who called in today. As a quick note, audio and transcript of today's roundtable will be available on the Department of Defense official blog, DOD Live. Uh, you can visit that blog at www. .dodlive.mil and click on the Bloggers Roundtable tab to find that information. Again, I'd like to thank General Buchanan and thank all of our bloggers for participating today. This concludes today's event. Feel free to disconnect at this time.